you would, we'll go ahead and read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. We're going to talk about the whole chapter today, but we'll use those as focal verses. Starting in verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around them. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Again, we're studying the book of Acts. We're going through, and we need to realize kind of a, a difference in this book. Many of the accounts we read in the Bible span a long time. The book of Acts, these events are happening very quickly. It's just been four or five years since Jesus was crucified on the cross. And God is moving very rapidly. Last week, we looked at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and that occurred, the scholars say, around 35, 36 B, uh, A.D. And this passage with Saul, they believe, happened in A.D. 36. So within that same year period, we have the account of Philip being spirited or told first to go down to Gaza and then spirited back. And now we have Paul going to Damascus and being stopped on the road. So events are happening. God is working diligently and quickly to see that the gospel is shared all over Israel and in fact taken around the world as we saw last week. Some of you will remember that Sue and I went to Kenya spring a year ago. Sue's parents were missionaries to Kenya career missionaries, spent 30 years in the mission field there. Sue went over when she was four years old, and she can regale you with trips of taking the freighter around the uh, tip of Africa to get there and wishing to get on land and all the things like that. I've never asked her if she actually checked if toilets go backwards below the equator, but uh, maybe that's something you wonder about. But it was an experience for her that she loves. We went, and Chuck, uh, Sue's dad, Charles Evans, was assigned in northwestern Kenya, near the border of Uganda, because they wanted him not only to plant churches in Katali and in Kenya, that area of Kenya, but in Uganda as well. And he got his pilot license, and he would fly from place to place, uh, planting churches, talking to people about the Lord. And so we see that God's work in taking that gospel through the Ethiopian eunuch was very effective. Matter of fact, I decided to look up what the 
rate of Christianity is in Kenya, and in 2019, 85.5% of the people professed to be Christians, with almost 11% professing to be Muslims, or religious peoples that have a faith. But those two together, you're over 90% uh, having a faith in a greater, higher being. Again, 85 and a half being Christian. Then I was piqued with curiosity. What about America? America in the same time period came back as 63% professing to be Christians. And it's dropped precipitously. Say that word three times fast. In 1972, just 50 years ago, 90% of Americans claimed to be Christians, down to 63% 50 years later, and we're well aware of that. But God is moving, He's still moving to spread the gospel throughout the world, and in Acts, we see of His work. And now we have the spread of Christianity happening really because of persecution. Those people like us, if they could have, they'd be happy to stay in their hometown. They're not looking to move. They're not looking for a change. But as we read in the account of Stephen, the persecution is building, and Stephen ended up being stoned for his beliefs. And so that persecution served to scatter people around. And Paul is proceeding after them. We read about how he went to Damascus and I have a map here I want to show you just so you can kind of get your bearings. You see up uh, here, we got uh, Jerusalem right in here. That's where they were stationed. There's little Bethlehem. Back last week, we were talking about this strip here is the Gaza Strip where Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch. And now Paul is going up to Damascus to seek out Christians uh, to capture them, to take them back to Jerusalem so they can be questioned by the leading council, the Sanhedrins. This journey from Jerusalem up to Damascus is about a 200-mile trip. If you were to jump in your car on the highway, it'd take you about four and a half hours to get there. Paul was probably walking. He might have had a donkey. Good chance he was just walking. Would have taken a whole lot more uh, time than that to get up there. So it was not a quick event. Now, you know, that helps me as I'm studying the Bible because when I read and they got up and went to wherever, I think, okay, it's just a short time, and I forget the time span it was and what they had to do to get there. So Saul is on his way to Damascus. He's seeking out Christians. He has letters of authority from the leaders in Jerusalem uh, to give to the Roman soldiers. You see, the Romans were in charge of that area, and they could not do any kind of punishment, uh, such as capturing people, without the Roman government approving. So he would take these letters to the local uh, leader of the Romans and show that the, the leaders in Jerusalem had commissioned him to do this, and so they would leave him alone. Saul was a highly educated Jew. One of his teachers was Gamaliel. And in 534 of Acts, we read, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, 
who was honored among all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a while. That account, they were wondering what to do about the apostles sharing their faith, and they wanted to, uh, to punish them. But Gamaliel makes a wise statement later. He said, if, it's, if there's nothing to it, it'll fizzle and fade away. And if God's in it, you won't be able to stop it. That's Gamaliel. Later in the book of Acts, chapter 22, Paul is in Jerusalem, and he's standing before the Sanhedrin, and he's saying of himself, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as jealous for God as any of you are today, speaking to the Sanhedrin. And later we hear Paul in Philippians talk about his merits as a Jew. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, that was part of their ritual, eighth days. And nurses can tell you that's an important uh, day in the body. The coagulation starts, different things. There's a reason for it. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and for righteousness based on the law, faultless. This guy was at the pinnacle of the Jewish faith. Highly educated, driven, zealous, practicing the faith. And he said, at one time, I would have taken great confidence in that. Saul was very zealous for his faith. We first saw him in chapter 7 on the stoning of Stephen. In verse 58, it tells us that those stoning Stephen laid their coats at the feet of Saul. He was there observing and approving of the stoning. Saul's persecution of the Christians was known far and wide. In fact, when God came to Ananias and said, hey, Saul's over here, I need you to go talk to him. Ananias says, uh, Lord, are you not aware this man is capturing and torturing Christians and you want me to go talk to him, right, Lord? God says, yes. So Ananias goes, he obeys. He went to Saul, said that he was sent by God. He lays hands on his eyes. It tells us that something similar to scales fell off and Saul could see again. Ananias went on to, to open the eyes of his heart, talking to Saul about the gospel, telling him from the Christian perspective about the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul would have known the history of those days very well. He would have been alive, probably was in Jerusalem. He would have known the reasons for the uh, Jews' Rejection of Jesus, he knew that intimately. And so Ananias has given him information from a different viewpoint about who Jesus was, and he certainly had Paul's attention. And that occasion, Saul, I'm trying to stick to that because we're not too Paul yet, accepted Christ as Messiah. He repented, he changed and then he followed in baptism. I shared with you 
last week about baptism, how it was a Jewish ritual for thousands of years. He was probably baptized as a Jew, that ritual of mikvah, that is a cleansing, symbolic cleansing of the body. But Paul knew he needed to do that again as a Christian to indicate his fellowship with the Christian people. And I feel very certain it was a sense of cleansing for him as he was immersed in the water, buried to an old life, risen to a new, that those sins of his, those grievous sins, were essentially washed away in his mind. Many of us think that God changed Paul, Saul's name to Paul, but uh, the Bible doesn't tell us that. We think that because of Peter, I guess, where his name was Simon, and it was changed to Peter. Paul was Saul's Latin name. That's what he would have used in Rome. Saul was his Hebrew name. hope I said that in right order. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. And he used that when he was testifying to the Romans and probably he used it because so many were fearful of him. In Acts, we read time after time he would go to a town and they were scared to go hear him preach because they knew he was one breathing murderous threats against the Christians, as they would say. So he took on the name of Paul. In his conversion, God did two very powerful things. One, he protected his people. He stopped Paul's persecution of the Christians. But secondly, God brought a highly schooled, one highly schooled in Jewish literature, the Talmud, those, the Torah, all of those writings, the teachings, into the Christian fold. And because he knew them so in-depth, he was able better than perhaps anyone else in his day to enter into the discussions and arguments with the Jewish leaders, that he could better than anybody counter their rejection of Jesus the Messiah. On that road to Damascus, a pivotal moment happened with Paul. When he was struck down and blinded, and we see that it basically took him to the ground because it says he got up. Jesus speaks to him. He says, who are you? Uh, he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He didn't really, he didn't know Christ in that way. He didn't know who was speaking to him. He didn't recognize that Christ had that power, had that means. So he's saying, who are you, Lord? And that's a question each one of us have to answer in life. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and 29, Jesus is doing his teaching. And he's with his 12 disciples. And he says, who do people say that I am? And they responded, some say you're John the Baptist, which would been interesting. John was recently beheaded. Some say you're Elijah, who was a prophet, who was translated, didn't die, that some believe that he was going to come back. And some say, well, he's just a prophet. And then Jesus asked that pointed question, who do you say that I am? And that is the question when 
the rubber meets the road, when we get down to the nitty-gritty, each one of us have to answer, who do you say Jesus is? There was a, a book written years ago that put forth the argument that Jesus was one of three things. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. And it brought out the idea that if he was a liar, there's been big liars through the ages. Some people talk about that Hitler was able to sway so many people because he gave a big lie. And I remember reading from those people who study these things that little lies will see through. It's interesting, but we tend to fall for a big lie bit faster than a little lie. And Hitler's thing capitalized on the, on, on the feelings of the people of Germany. They had been defeated in World War I. And then, so they're feeling downtrodden, oppressed, all these things. And he gives them this lie that they're a super race and they need to dominate the world. And it, it fed into who they were and what they were feeling. And they bought that lie and they became the travesty that we know Nazism was and continues, unfortunately. So the idea that liars are found out, eventually Hitler didn't succeed, he was defeated, and other liars through the time have been found out. So liars, it may last for a while, but people figure it out. There's been a lot of crazy people that get followed, but there again, as time passes, their lunacy, their insanity bubbles to the surface and people figure it out, it doesn't last. So if Jesus isn't a liar and he isn't a lunatic with his crazy comments, he must be Lord. And of course, that's how we worship him as Lord. And that's the question that comes to each and every one. Who do you say I am? And uh, songs are running through my head because I've got a song, Lord, Liar, Lunatic, on a record at home. And, and there's another one that says you can't, that same song says you can't just say he was a good man. He didn't say he was just a good man. He said he was the son of God, that he was the Messiah. He made that pronouncement. So what do you do with that? Who do you say he is? Peter said, thou art the Messiah. And that's when Jesus replied upon that rock, I will build my church, that Jesus is the Messiah over the Christian church, over everyone. Jesus told Paul, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And note, really stood out with me this week as I'm studying. Note how Jesus identifies with his followers. Paul had persecuted hundreds, if not thousands, seen them crucified, seen them stoned. And Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Well, Saul never attacked Jesus physically, as we know. It really tells us how much Jesus associates with us, how much he feels our pain, how much he feels 
what we're going through, that he took ownership of that. I am the one you are persecuting. You may be doing it to all these followers out here, but I feel that persecution. You're persecuting me, Paul. And so for every believer that Paul captured, had beaten, put in jail and stoned, Jesus was wounded by the attacks on their body. Let that sink in. He felt their pain, their heartache, their discouragement, and he took it personally when one of his believers was tortured. We can take from that, Jesus feels your pain too. He knows what you're going through, and it hurts him. He knows how your body aches. He knows the loss you hope you feel in your soul. He knows the loss you experience when loved ones go on. He's acquainted with your grief, and he dances with you in joy. Isaiah 53.3 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid it from our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Didn't want to look on Jesus in his turmoil and in his torture and suffering. Our Lord and Savior knows every tear we shed. He knows every insult we bear and every rejection we endure. He feels it personally. And that's why he said to Paul, it is I whom you are persecuting. Paul realized the error of his way. He repented of his error and he turned from persecuting Jesus Christ to proclaiming Jesus Christ. He followed up his decision by being baptized, and I'm sure it was a moving experience as I described. Paul had a bold conversion. In the realm of religion, it was earth-shattering. Paul gave us 13 books in the Bible. I believe he wrote Hebrews. Scholars disagree, but I, I believe he wrote Hebrews. That would make it 14. Paul mentored several young pastors Timothy, Titus, Philemon. He argued with the Apostle Peter on theological issues. Peter was teaching the Christians, the Gentile Christians, that they needed to be circumcised to complete their act of faith. Circumcision was, of course, a Jewish rite that was to be observed, that was commanded by God to do, but was unnecessary as a step of faith, and Paul took him to task for that. Paul, who once said, as I read, that I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, my parents did it exactly right. But Paul said, it's circumcision of the heart that God looks at, not the body. He wants to see, is that self-excess off of your heart? Are you tender and fresh before God? So Paul was very powerful, and he impacts us today with all that he teaches. But in the true measure of a matter of your conversion, it was just as bold as the Apostle Paul. It doesn't matter your level of education, financial stability, religious legacy of your family, nor any value you may place on yourself. I've heard the old preachers say, 
the ground is level at the cross. And that means that no matter what our station is, whether we're a slave or a king, before God, we all stand on level ground because he looks at that sin nature. And we must each answer that question, who do you say that I am? I heard on the radio, they were talking about some football player that was speeding. He was doing like 70 in a 35 mile an hour zone. The police stopped him, pulled him over, and he did that phrase. You know what he said. Don't you know who you're talking to? That doesn't work with God either. We can't say, God, hey, hey this is me. You know, I, I've given all this money. I've given all this time. I've done all this to the church. And God says, but who do you say that I am? That's that question. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how low we feel, how unworthy we feel, how awful we think we are. God doesn't look at that. He looks at the heart. Do we accept Jesus Christ for who he is, for what he's done? Paul gave us these famous verses. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There is none righteous. No, not one. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the glorious promise. And he gives us another reason to praise God in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And this isn't from you. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I'm making a pretty safe guess here that none of you are guilty of stoning Christians. At least, maybe not real. But no matter how grievous your sins have been, and no matter how goody-two-shoes you were growing up, the ground is level at the cross. You can't tout your parents for faith. You can't tout any works. It's just, who do you say that I am? Your prominence among men doesn't impress God. Your financial success doesn't impress God. Your academic acumen doesn't impress God though he will use all of those. They're all achievements to be proud of. But what impresses God is a heart that acknowledges its sin, repents from that sin, and takes on a life of faith in Jesus Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 51:17 said, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. God said another place, I tire of your smelly sacrifices, meaning your religious acts. That contrite spirit, the definition is feeling or expressing remorse or penitence affected by guilt. Synonyms are apologetic, repentant, sorry, ashamed. That's what the psalmist realized God was interested in. Those attitudes require a willingness to admit that anything you think you are isn't enough to satisfy God. His standard is perfection. 
And the perfection he requires is only available through believing in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and accepting his atonement for your sin. Living a life for Christ means yielding your accomplishments to him so that he can use who you are to further his kingdom on earth. Jesus identifies with your joys and sorrows, your pain and strength. He makes them his own, but we must lay them at the feet, his feet. We must yield every aspect of our life to him if we are to be fully in tune with him. When you do that, we've been blessed by God more than we could ask or think, more than we know. But when we do that, We'll see Heavenly Father's blessings like you can't imagine. And we'll have the security of knowing that whatever situation you go into, the Heavenly Father has your back. You can be assured because He's there with you. Are you tired of carrying that burden? Are you tired of carrying the struggles of your life? Are you tired of the pain you carry inside and out? Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest is there. It's waiting. The rest of his blessing, the rest of his carrying the burden, the rest of his providing for your needs. So are you ready to rest? If you are, you need to give it all to Jesus. Let him carry your load. If you've never done that moment in your life when you acknowledge your need for Jesus Christ, when you acknowledge your sin, when you acknowledge the burden you're bearing, want relief, then that's the first step. Just as Paul on that road to Damascus, let the Lord open your eyes, the eyes of your heart, receive him as Savior. The Christians, those of us who have called upon his name, that's what we need to do each and every morning. Yield ourselves anew to the Lordship of our God and Savior. He's wanting to bless us. He's waiting to bless us. He's willing to bless us. We hold that blessing back because we try to hold on to it. And we're not strong enough, but He is. We're going to sing now time of invitation. As always, the altar is open for you to come. I'm here if you want to speak with me. You're welcome to come and pray. You're welcome to sit on the front row to take a movement. I often encourage you, if God's speaking to you now, to don't sing, but to just talk to Him in this moment. He's calling you to something. A deeper walk, to begin the walk, to profess that walk, Somehow he's speaking because God don't waste his time.